Let us hear God's word. Psalm 107, verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Well, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. And they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, and he broke their chains in pieces. Other men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Other men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken, a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. And they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. Other men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place, and sow fields and plant vineyards, that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them, and they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes, and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. And he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
Amen. Well, as we begin here today, uh, we started the the first two of the four sections where God gathers his people, and and we talked about those uh, who were wandering, who were lost. We talked about those who were in prison. And so here today, as we begin, I want you to think of the times where you have been hungry to the point where you think you may pass out or maybe even die. I also want you to think of times where uh, you've been on the water, been out in a boat, and maybe enjoying the day, and all of a sudden a storm comes up. Now, some of us may have experienced some of these things. Maybe some of us know of others who have. But with this in mind, we come here now to these two sections. We started the psalm here a couple weeks ago, setting it in its context in book five. And then we started with simply the command to praise, the command to give thanks. This is the overall theme of the psalm. And God, through the psalmist, commands us to praise Yahweh for redeeming us. The immediate point, of course, is that God redeemed Israel from their exile to Babylon, as well as being scattered to various other places. But the psalm also here is speaking of four ways that God has redeemed his people. So again, last week in verses 4 to 9, we talked about how he redeemed them from desert places. And then in verses 10 to 16, how he redeemed his people from prison. Now, certainly we see literal fulfillment of this for Israel when he brought them out of Babylon. But as you read through the psalm, it is certainly worded generally enough for us to make application for ourselves, and even for Israel for that matter, in more broad ways. And so we may literally be lost and wandering around. We may literally be in prison, but certainly all of us are lost and in prison in sin and worthy of judgment. We also, at times, find ourselves wandering in more figurative kinds of ways, enslaved and bound to idols, to lusts, to activities, to relationships, and so forth. But the reason why we're praising God here in this psalm is because even in these situations, even when we are the the cause of it because of our sin, when we cry out to God for help, he hears us. When we cry out to him sincerely, he hears, he helps. And he guides us back to himself, back to his heavenly home, and he sets us free. And so whether literal, spiritual, or figurative, God helps us in our problems, and so therefore, he deserves our praise and our thanksgiving. Now, in each of these four sections, there are five parts. We have the problem to begin with. We have the cry for help. God helps, thirdly. We praise him, fourthly. And then fifthly, it's a little different. In the first two, we saw basically a reiteration of why we should praise God. We'll see a little bit different now in these two. So we come now to verses 17 to 22, which first talk about illness in some way. And then in verses 23 to 32, we see about being in uh, ships and storms coming. So let's start here then today in verse 17. And again, use the translation that I'm giving to you so that I can give you a more uh, faithful translation of the Hebrew which, uh, unfortunately, often the English translations obscure some things. And so this will 
uh, be uh, more direct, if you will. So verse 17, they became fools because of their way of rebellion, and because of their iniquities, they were humbled. All right, first of all, note here the parallelism. Remember in Hebrew, they rhyme ideas, and so the second line is rhyming the first line, not by sound, but by idea, and they are uh, similar. There's enough differences, you could probably call it synthetic, but not that different, and so some may argue that they are synonymous. Note also the chiasm, we're switching the order of things. The verb begins the first line, it ends the second line, for example. All right, now, because of that last verb, uh, the Hebrew is worded in such a way to clearly emphasize that the reason why this is happening is because of Israel's sin. Now, you'll notice in the New King James, they don't assume a word in the first line, but I have, and other translations and commentators have as well, and that's why it's in parentheses. And so our point here is, is really pretty straightforward. Israel became fools because they rebelled against God. They didn't listen to his word. And so God humbled them. And in our immediate context, they rejected God for Baal, they rejected God's word for other things, and so God humbled them by bringing the Babylonians against them. This is our initial context, our initial thought. So if you turn over then and look at verse 18, I guess it's the next page here, um, it says, All food their soul abhorred, and they arrived as far as the gates of death. Once again, the Hebrew is worded in such a way here to emphasize that this is because of their sin. Now remember, in the first section when they're wandering in the wilderness, it may be because of their sin, maybe not. They just took a wrong turn, you might say. Uh, They're in prison because of their sin, and now here it's specifically because of Israel's sin. Their sin resulted in the problem. Now the question is, what is the problem? All food their soul abhorred. What, what, what's that about? Well, if you look at the outlines that I have on the back page, you see that in both of them it emphasizes illness or sickness. And that may be true. It, it, it is the case that when we are sick, especially if it's a stomach bug or something, we tend not to eat. And sometimes we don't eat anything for a few days. And um, sometimes it just nothing smells right, nothing tastes right, and so forth. And so we abhor food when we are ill. And if it's bad enough, we haven't eaten for a few days. When we go back to eating, usually it takes a few more days to get back to enjoying food again. And so maybe that's all that we're talking about here. But notice how severe it is. In the second line, they arrive as far as the gates of death. So this isn't just a few-day stomach bug. Is something more severe than that. Now, what is clear is that their revulsion to food is because of their sin. Their closeness to death is because they have done something to offend God. They were rebellious. They're called fools. And so this indicates that they had rejected God in some way. Now, it's worded broadly enough here that we can probably apply it to several things. But again, that initial broad context has to do with Israel in exile. And so we know there, from many other passages, that how they rebelled is that they added Baal to their worship. They didn't reject Yahweh altogether. 
They just added Baal to their worship of Yahweh and combined them. We call it syncretism. And so because of this, God sent them into exile. Okay. So I'm inclined to agree with those who think that this sickness we're talking about is the sickness that took place when Babylon was besieging Jerusalem and they didn't have food. And what food they had was running out. They were starving. They were becoming sick. And um, some of them died. All of them were near the gates of death. Okay. Now, again, maybe we can apply this more broadly, but it, this seems to make most sense here. And I'm going to bring out something here in a, in a little bit that, uh, in my mind, helps to cement this connection. But hold that thought. But since... The psalm is general enough. Let's, let's apply it more broadly for ourselves. All of us are sick spiritually and even to the point of death. As Paul says, we are dead in our sins. We are all fools. We all have rebelled against God. Some people reject God completely. Hey, we did the Bill Nye and Ken Ham thing in Sunday school uh, this morning, and obviously Bill Nye has rejected God completely. But uh, many people, even those who set, uh, have, sit, have sat in the church for so many years, they combine truth with error. Some combine evolutionary thought with theism. Some people apply uh, postmodernism or applied postmodernism with the Bible, and that's why we're having this CRT conference. The church in America and in the West has, has syncretized with unbiblical thought and practice. And we need to understand how that is the case and rediscover the truth of the gospel. And it's just so sad to me how many churches in our country are, uh, are so easily combining our, if you will, modern version of Baalism with, with the truth. Other people claim to be Christians, and yet they live like the world. Hey, maybe some say, oh, it's okay to live together and not be married, or abortion is okay, or enjoy various pleasures in life. Some people don't bat an eye about working on Sundays or causing someone else to work on Sunday by eating out or going to some event. But, you know, the biggest way that we combine truth with error and syncretize is this. Christ died for my sins, but I'm pretty good too, you know. And so we add to the work of Christ. Fill in the blank with any number of things. But very easily we could say, well, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus and he died for my sins and he's been righteous for me and so forth. But, you know, I do go to all the church activities or I do tithe or I sing louder than everybody else. Or I don't do X, Y, Z in terms of cultural things. And so it's this idea of being good enough or better than. But that's an act of rebellion too. That's an act of foolishness. And we are worthy of God humbling us. As we just read <clears throat> even in Galatians. Hey, it's Christ alone. We don't add anything. Except for our sin, of course. That he dies for. Well, because of this combination of truth and error, there are many of us, maybe even here today, that are starving and weak spiritually, even figuratively, and possibly literally. 
For Israel, Babylon was playing the Hunger Games at Israel's expense, literally. But today we live in a society where the political elite are manipulating the economy and some people are playing the Hunger Games, unfortunately. Especially with the shutdown, some people were in a very bad place. But however we apply this, the point is the same. We are talking about being malnourished, abhorring good things because we have combined truth with error in some way. We abhor spiritual food. We're dead to the things of God, certainly. But even as professing believers, we can do some similar things and do not glorify God and relate to him as he wants us to do. Okay? And so when this is the case, we are now worshiping some other idol and we are left hungry and sickly, again, maybe literally, certainly spiritually and figuratively. All right, now, here's the problem. And here's a few thoughts as to how to apply this problem for ourselves. Let's come now to the solution. Verse 19. Then they cried out to Yahweh in the distress to them. From their afflictions, he saved them. All right, we come again now to the so-called cry refrain. If you look back at verse 6, you'll see I give a a further description as to uh, the specifics here. And uh, the refrain is found in verse 6, verse 13, verse 19 here, and in verse 28. Once in each of these four sections. And they're all the same except two things. First of all, the final verb in each one of these is different. In this way, in the first one, it was deliver in verse 6 and verse 13, and now verse 19, and they're actually the same. They both have the word save, and in verse 28, it will be to bring out. But to deliver, to save, to bring out, they all have a very similar meaning. The other one is the word cry out. Verses 6 and 28 have the exact same word, sa'ak, with the T-S on the front. Verses 13 and 19 have za'ak, with a Z on the front. But they mean the same kind of things. So just briefly, to see how things are, are worded here. But our point is pretty straightforward, isn't it? When we are in trouble, even when we've caused the trouble because of our sin, cry out to God. He hears us. We don't have to become good enough before he hears us. Cry out sincerely. Cry out to him. Ask him to help. Acknowledge when your faith is weak and that your cry is mixed with indifference. But cry out to him. Cry out, note, to Yahweh, our covenant Lord, not to some generic God. But Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is compassionate. He is forgiving. He restores. And so when you sin... Even quite deliberately, don't run from God when he brings that punishment against you. Turn to him. He is our only hope. He is our only help, ultimately. Cry out to him for salvation. Certainly we do this as unbelievers. But even as God's people, like Israel, the children of God, when when we rebel against God, maybe in small ways, maybe in large ways, whatever, Cry out to him. And because he hears us, 
Okay? We can have hope. We can have help. So verse 20, how does he help? <clears throat> he was sending his word, and he was healing them, and he was delivering from their pits. Now, three actions here. All of them are showing a continuous action. And first of all, he was sending his word. Uh, back in verse 17, when you rebel, you rebel ultimately against what God says and God himself. Here now, he sends his word. Whenever we rebel, we usually then combine it with something that is false. And so God here to help us sends us what is true so that we can hold on to what he says and not combine it with error. But we also have the idea that God sends his word. God's word is, if you will, that force, the, the, the uh, power that affects change. God's word is what created everything. God's word is what sent them into exile. God's word is what restores Israel and restores us and saves us. And so the illnesses that we endure, then secondly, are healed. God sends his word, we have healing. We are no longer abhorring the things that are good, we are loving them. We are no longer turning away from the Lord, we are turning to him. He heals our heart, our soul, <clears throat> whether again literally, spiritually, or figuratively. <clears throat> and then thirdly, we see that he is delivering from their pits, he says. All right, now your translations are going to probably smooth that out a little bit. The challenge that we find here with this word pit is it's only used twice in the Old Testament. So what is exactly, uh, what exactly does it mean? Well, the other time it's found is in Lamentations 4, verse 20. <clears throat> and in Lamentations 4, verse 20, clearly we're talking about the grave in some way. And so we have that idea here. Because of the connection with Lamentations, <clears throat> this is why I think the initial context is that Babylon had besieged Jerusalem. That's what the whole book of Lamentations is about, how they were trying to survive the besieging. And so I think this psalm, by using this word, is connecting us to that thought. <clears throat> and so God sent his word, he healed them, and he brought them out, delivered them from their pits. Now think about this a moment. They were besieged by, uh, by uh, Babylon there in Jerusalem. God brought them out first by having Jerusalem fall. Babylon could have stayed there. You know, they could have been whatever, uh, playing games outside the walls or, you know, whatever they were doing. And just they just could have kept on waiting until everybody died. But God brought them out, delivered them from this by having Babylon succeed in their besieging so that they did not all die. Then they went into Babylon, obviously for punishment, but then eventually God brought them back. And so sometimes God delivers us over time. Sometimes the deliverance may even take more than one generation. But God does deliver when we cry out to him. And he did it in this way with, uh, with Israel. Ultimately, of course, God has delivered us from the pit, from the grave. Through the coming of Christ, who lived and died and then rose again. 
And so even though we may die before Christ comes, we will not die forever. Whether Sheol or hell or however the Bible describes it here, right? God, through Christ, has delivered us from these things. There is no second death for the, the true believer. Likewise, we can think of this in more figurative ways. As God brought the almost dead to life, he has given us eternal life, but he also gives us life in, can you say, everyday ways. Think of it in this way. Hey, 500 years ago, in the time of the Reformation and such, the church was starving on meager food. And yeah, it was in large measure due to their sin. But God sent his word, hearing the cries of his people. And through the Reformation, the church was brought out of the pit. Today, we need another Reformation. The church here in the West, especially, is, uh, is joined with the world. And we are pouring what is true and what is good. We are in the pit. And the true believers within the church are very hungry for what is good. And so as we cry out to him, okay, God will deliver. We don't know exactly how he will deliver, but he will. So then, let's look at verse 21. Here then is... <clears throat> Part number four of the five for each section. Let them praise and regard to Yahweh for his covenant love and his wonders to the sons of Adam. When God helps us, when we cry to him, again, whether it's spiritually, figuratively, literally, whether it's us as individuals or us as a church, we must praise him. We must give him thanks. As I said from the beginning, verse one, that verb includes the idea of praising and thanking God. And here's that verb again found here in the refrain. As we see in the refrain, again, and we saw it in verse 8 and 15, now here, and again in verse 31, and in all four cases, they are identical. There are no differences whatsoever. But our point then is clear. When God helps you, say thank you. Praise him. How many times... Do we go through a day and God has done something good and we haven't thanked him for it? Okay, let's praise him. Let's thank him for the ways that he has proved himself to be faithful to his promises for us, his people. How he has restored us, even when we've rebelled and sinned. Give him thanks. Give him praise. Okay. <clears throat> now remember that third line, as I mentioned and emphasized last week. It says, his wonders to the sons of Adam. We can debate on how to translate the word wonders. I think this is uh, probably the best way of doing it. <clears throat> but notice it's talking about the sons of Adam. God will even hear the cry of the unbeliever. God will even save the unbeliever. Not necessarily ultimate salvation, but God does hear the cry of the unbeliever and gives them at least a temporal blessing. Even when that unbeliever is hungry and near death, sometimes he does this. And they then are responsible to give God thanks. If they don't, then they add to the eternal judgment that they deserve. Okay, but notice how 
this refrain that wanders to the sons of Adam expands our thought beyond just what God does for his people, his covenant love for his people. But we need to think of it carefully. And so whatever the context here, whatever the specifics, when God helps us in our need, give him thanks. Give him praise. So then let's come to verse 22, which is now part five here. And notice how it's a little different than what we had seen in the first two sections. Here it says, let them sacrifice sacrifices of praise and let them recount his works with joyful yelling. First of all, note the parallelism. Both lines are saying very much the same thing. Um, different enough, we probably can call it synthetic as I have there, but if you want to argue for synonymous, um, I, I think you'll have a good case. They're very similar uh, in these words. But uh, notice in verse 9 and in verse 16, the part 5 of the section was basically to reiterate why we should give God praise. Okay. This time, though, part 5 is to add to the command to praise. So verse 21, <clears throat> let them praise in regard to Yahweh. Now, let them sacrifice sacrifices of praise. Let them recount his works with joyful yelling. So instead of just one command to praise, there are three here in these two verses. And so just note the difference uh, in this case. And so two more commands. And the first of these two, you see how the verb and the noun are the same. Sacrifice, sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Okay. <clears throat> Now, this word for praise is the same one in the last verse, the same one in verse 1, same one, the one that comes from the name for Judah. And so let's give him praise. Let's give him thanks. Let, Israel obviously offered literal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, but they also offered sacrifices of praise, and we should do the same thing. Let's give him thanks and praise. And then in the second line here, it says about recounting his works with joyful yelling, now, you may remember from Psalm 47, and you'll notice that the second hymn we sang is based on Psalm 47. You may remember, uh, may remember when we looked at that, that that word for joyful yelling does not mean that you go to a football game and you shout your head off and you hurt your horse when you get home. That's not what we're talking about. <clears throat> but we are talking about lifting our voices, shouting in that sense. We are to lift up our voices and give praise to our God, filled with joy. We're not just, oh, thank you, Lord, you know. No, we're to thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. We praise you. you know, lift up your voice. This is the idea. Now, we do this in word. We do it maybe especially in song. And so here's the command. Give sacrifices of praise Okay, and recount his works with joyful yelling. So here's what we're commanded to do when God helps us. So let's think of it in this way. Maybe you could put it negatively here first. If we do not sing, then we're acting like rebellious fools, verse 17. If we sing, but we're kind of just mumbling along, or we're glad when we're done singing, then are we much different than the rebellious fool of verse 17? 
if we sing words that are unbiblical or self-focused, and that can include hymns, okay? We have 700-some here, but there are many thousands of hymns, and not all of them are worth singing. <laughs> but certainly there are praise songs that aren't worth singing either, okay? So if we are singing things that are not according to God's word, then we're being rebellious fools there too. Remember, God's word brings deliverance, verse 20. And so let's make sure that we are recounting his works accurately and faithfully. Okay? Since it doesn't just include singing, but it includes what I'm doing right now, okay, if I am not faithful to expound the text to you here, then I'm being a rebellious fool. And unfortunately, there are way too many pastors and preachers that are rebellious fools here today. Because they're not faithfully expounding the scriptures. There are some that do. Unfortunately, not many. Okay. But if we turn that around, if you're not expecting faithful expounding of the text, or if you're not listening, or if you're complaining about something in your mind, if you're not a conscionable hearer, as the confession says, then you're being a rebellious fool. If you grudgingly come to church... If you can't wait to get home, if you're grumbling because it's too long, then don't be surprised if you start abhorring good things. But to put it positively, what better thing can we do? Hey, but to praise our God, to hear him speak to us, to give him thanks. What better thing can we do? And how could it ever take too long? Hey, we could be here for hours and we're just starting on what God deserves in terms of praise and thanksgiving. How can our singing and our prayer be a bore? Hey, it's one of the greatest things that we can do. How can sleeping or daydreaming or fidgeting or clock watching ever be a part of our worship? Because this is our God that we're worshiping and thanking and praising who has saved us. Okay. And so note the command three times here in these two verses, but it's really the whole tone of the psalm. This psalm is calling us to praise God because he deserves our praise and our thanksgiving. And he deserves far more than we give to him even on our best days. Well, let's keep going now. <clears throat> let's look at this next section. Okay. Verse 23, the fourth, fourth section here. Those who go down to the sea in the ships, those who do work on many waters, I really should have a comment at the end of that word. Um, notice here again some parallelism. Okay. Very similar, again, probably talk, call it synthetic because the second line says more than the first line. But again, they're very similar. And uh, rhyming of thought here. So obviously we're talking about mariners, sailors in this section. So we move from hunger and, and, and uh, uh, besieging and so forth now here to people on ships. Now maybe we could talk about vacationers on a cruise. Uh, maybe we could talk about those who are out fishing in the lake. But the primary emphasis here is on merchants who are shipping goods. 
Now, at least here in this verse, there is no indication whatsoever that this was being done sinfully. In the last two sections, yes. But here, there's no indication at this point that they're uh, working on the sea is sinful in any way. Okay. Now, maybe it's like Jonah who is fleeing in a ship, <clears throat> but again, it doesn't say that here. Some people have tried then to uh, say that this section is being used figuratively, that Israel was put into ships in a figurative sense and taken to Babylon. All right, maybe. Certainly, broadly, we can apply it that way, but uh, I don't know if we can uh, say that's the initial point. Okay. It sounds like normal everyday activity. So then, <clears throat> how do we ship goods today? Well, certainly we have our mariners who are on the big ocean liners with stacks of, of, of uh, cargo there that, that go around the world and so forth. We also have pilots that do it in airplanes, or we have the conductors and such on trains. We have the, the truckers that haul goods across the country. We have the local delivery men, the UPS drivers, or, you know, whatever. We can even deliver people, not just goods. But this seems to be our context, okay? But some of you may have been on a ship, and you can really identify with these words the way they are given to us. So let's then look at verse 24. They, they saw the deeds of Yahweh and his wonders in the deep. All right, so obviously continuing the thought, and notice there's no indication of sin at this point. Note the parallelism, both lines saying very similar things, um, maybe closer to synonymous than synthetic, but all right. Note the ellipsis. Remember, that means you assume a word in the next line, so they saw is assumed in the second line. And note the emphasis, they is repeated. All right, with all those brief comments on the words, the point is pretty straightforward, isn't it? These mariners have seen the things of God out on the waters. Hey, the wonders in the deep ocean. That word wonders is the same one in the praise refrain. Okay, so the wonders, the miracles, the things that God has done on the ocean are truly an amazing thing to behold. So, again, since we don't have any emphasis on sin yet, uh, let's just talk generally. Have you ever been out in the middle of the ocean? You can't see the land? Kind of hard to do that in Lake Erie, okay? <clears throat> Maybe Lake Huron or Lake Superior, but uh, have you ever been out in the water where you can't see the land? It, it's just quite overwhelming, the immensity of it all. As we look at the beauty of the waves, the spray of water, the tang of salt in the air, the cry of the gulls, the seeing of the aquatic animals, the joy of just rocking back and forth, up and down over the waves and so forth, even the power of the wind and the waves around us, the sense of irrelevance and smallness and solitude. And if you're out there at night, the seeing of the stars maybe in ways you've never seen before. Those are truly wondrous to behold. We're out on the boat and we see these things. This is our initial context. So you see then, right, the connection of wonders here back to the praise refrain, the connection with praising God for this is very close. Now maybe you haven't been out in a boat in this way. Maybe you've seen it in a movie or read it about, read about it or something. But even in other ways, as we 
travel. Um, and when you're up in an airplane looking down or riding on a train or even just the flow of traffic and so forth, uh, all these things can lead to a sense of awe and wonder at, at the things that God has done. And we give him praise. Well, with this now here filling our minds, we now, verse 25, see a problem. Then he spoke. Then he caused to stand a wind of a storm. Then she raised his waves. All right, now a few things here. Note the second and third line are in parallel. Hey, again, some will argue synthetic, very similar. Some can argue synonymous there. Notice how the pronoun she is connecting us to the wind and the waves. And note then the pronoun his at the end. I would agree with those who say this is referring to God ultimately. Some try to connect it to deeds in verse 24 or even the sea in verse 23, which isn't altogether wrong. But I think the main point is this it's talking about God. These are his waves. He caused to stand the storm, the wind here, and so forth. So ultimately, he is behind it. And so remember, we talked about Baalism before. We could talk about the sea gods and the different cultures and so forth. No, Yahweh is the true sea god. He is the one behind it all. Remember in verse 20, we talked about God's word as the ultimate power. Well, now here, God's word is the one that's sending the storm. Now, is this being done because the people of Israel had sinned? Maybe, like Jonah, but there's no clear indication of that here. It could be, if you will, just a storm and you're caught in it. But of course, God sends it. So note that in the description, verse 26, they went up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul and evil was melting. Notice the added words there. If you take them out, you can... Imagine being on the boat going up and down here. It hardly can say anything. Um, and if you've uh, ever been out in the waters with a storm, it, it, it can be quite terrifying. Um, the the uh, storms can be so bad that they've measured waves from 60 to 100 feet tall. So the description here sounds like one of these bigger kinds of storms. The storm was, was evil. It is fierce. And even seasoned mariners are afraid. Again, think of the story of Jonah. So verse 27, <clears throat> they were leaping and they were tottering like the drunken man and all of their wisdom was ruined. Even the people who could, can you say, walk better on a boat than they can on land? <laughs> they can't stand because it's so bad. Even the best sailors are at their wit's end, unable to steer properly to ride out the storm, because God is bigger than them all. You remember here, about 15 months ago, we were going through the book of Acts, and we talked about how Paul was going to Rome, and the storm that came up. And you remember how they were casting the cargo overboard to reduce the weight of the ship? Remember the tackle they got rid of, and how they tied up uh, the hull with ropes and used sails a certain way and dropped anchors and they were rowing and steering. Remember all the things that we had talked about there? Okay. Well, this verse is saying <clears throat> none of that made any difference in this storm. 
Again, similar to what Paul had faced. Well, a few of us may have ever experienced this kind of storm on the water. I did get caught on Lake Huron one time, uh, but I was in a bay. And another time there was a storm, it wasn't that bad, even when we were out of the bay. Um, but that's nothing compared to this description. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie uh, A Perfect Storm or something like that. Um, but we can also apply this in other ways. You think of other uh, captains sailing their vessel, even if it's not a ship. <clears throat> maybe you've been caught in an airplane in a, in a storm or a snowstorm or something like that. But whatever it is, okay, this is to such a degree that even the best transportation specialists okay, could barely survive it. But even more specifically, and maybe more applicable to us, is the application of these thoughts figuratively. We all have been in some pretty severe storms, figuratively speaking. All of us have been to the point where we think we're not going to survive. The storm is so severe. It is so overwhelming. Maybe it's problems at work. Maybe it's finals week. <laughs> Maybe it's relationship difficulties. Maybe it's a financial institution coming to collect. Maybe it's the government and their oppressive ways. Maybe it's a persistent sin that you cannot seem to overcome. Maybe it's health problems. Fill in the blank. There's so many adversities that we have faced that we could consider in this figurative sense. Now notice that the opening section here of, of this broader section has five verses to it. It's much longer description than what we've seen in the, the first three. But it leads us then to the same response. When we are, are overwhelmed with the storms of life, and again, the text does not say they're specifically because of our sin. Whether they are or not, cry out to God for help. So now, turn to uh, uh, the next side here, verse 28. Then they cried out to Yahweh in the distress to them, and out of their afflictions he brought them out. So here again is the cry refrain. Note the final verb is to bring out, a little bit different. And this is the word sa'ak here with the T-S there for cry out. So again, go back to verse 6 and look at the note there. Um, same, same thing. For the fourth time, cry out to God for help, whether a literal storm or a figurative one, whether a spiritual one that affects you individually or those that affect a whole group of people. Cry out to God, okay? and he hears our cries. Let's cry out sincerely, and he hears our cries. So verse 29, he commanded a storm to a whisper, and their waves were silenced. Notice again, it's God's word that is the focal point. God's word brought the storm. God's word now calms the storm. Not our words. Okay? Think of Jonah on the ship and all the things that the sailors were saying. Their words didn't do a thing. Think of Paul when he was on the ship and all the other things they were crying out to their gods. That doesn't make any difference. 
But God's word does make a difference. He speaks and the storm subsides. And this makes sense because he spoke and he made the sea in the first place. So then verse 30, then they rejoiced because they became calm. Then he led them into a harbor of pleasure. Understandably, once you're in a storm like this and the sea goes calm, you are filled with joy. You're alive. But God not only calmed the storm, he brought them into safe harbor so they could enjoy solid ground again. Now, of course, Jesus did this very thing. And you think of the disciples there on the, the Sea of Galilee, and they can get very severe storms on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping. They wake him up. Jesus speaks, and he goes calm. The disciples rejoice. They also were in awe. Who is this man? He can't just be a man. He must be God, and of course that's true. And so whether we're talking about a literal storm or a figurative storm, God's word is what is in control of all of this, okay. and he helps his people. So then, verse 31, let them praise and regard to Yahweh for his covenant love and his wonders to the sons of Adam. Again, now hear the praise refrain. Again, it's identical to all the others. Here is what the psalm is all about. Let's praise God. Way too often, we forget to do that, or we just kind of, you know, half-heartedly give him thanks. Let's give him praise for bringing us out of these storms, including the storms that we have caused due to our sin. Once again, God will sometimes do this even for the unbeliever. He will save them in a temporal way, and they then must praise God. So if you happen to know an unbeliever, that just came out of a massive storm, whether literal or figurative, okay, encourage them to praise God, because they must do so. But of course, when God does this for his people, it is even more wondrous. So then, as we come to the fifth part of this section, it's verse 32. And notice how it was like the last one. And let them exalt him in the assembly of the people, and in the dwelling place of elders, let them praise him. Do you see how it's basically telling us to keep praising, right? Two more commands to praise. Notice we have some parallelism here again. Different enough, probably to call it synthetic. Note the chiasm, how it switches the order. Notice here, though, the last word for praise is a different word for praise. It's not the word that we get Judah. It's the word for hallelujah. And then note also the word exalt. It's like the psalmist is now using all the different words for praise. Let's make sure we cover all of our bases. What better thing can we do but praise and thank our God? Now, I've been saying to some degree an emphasis on us as individuals, but this verse clearly emphasizes that we should do this as a body of believers. Right? Exalt him in the assembly of the people. Let's do so here at church. Not just at home. Let's not just do it on the shore after our storm subsides, but let's do it here together as the people of God. For Israel, that, of course, would have been the temple and even the synagogue after the exile. But notice in the last line, it talks about the dwelling place of elders. 
Now, when we think of elders in the PCA, we think of the church, right? But in Israel, that probably is referring to the gates of the city. And so as God shows wonders even to unbelievers, so even our praise should be in the city streets, in the gates, in the courthouses, not just here at church, not just at home. Once again, how can we ever give God enough praise? How can we ever complain and say it takes too long to praise our God? There's so much more that we could do. And so the psalmist, God ultimately is commanding us, praise him, exalt him, lift up his name, give thanks to him. This should consume us. This, if we go back to Sunday school and Bill Nye's words, this is what should compel us. Not some harebrained endeavor to try to explain the universe without God. But this is what should compel us. The praising of our God, because he is most worthy. May God help us. We'll finish the psalm here, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Your word that creates and redeems, saves, even judges. We praise you, Lord, for this word that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. For we are so apathetic and indifferent At times we are truly moved by your greatness and your grace. And we give you the praise and the the adoration and thanksgiving you deserve. But way too many times we are so apathetic and we get bored after a while or distracted. But our God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. We thank you and we praise you that even when we cause our own problems... By turning from you, you you still are the one to whom we can turn and find help and salvation. We thank you for this, Lord. We also then ask that you would not only help us to praise and give you thanks, but that you would help us that when we are either stuck in a storm or we are besieged by enemies because of our sin, help us, Lord, to turn to you cry out sincerely for help, knowing that you are a God who loves and who is compassionate. For this, Lord, again, we give you praise and we give you thanks, and we ask then for your mercies in this, that your name would be exalted in your kingdom further. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.